Part Four, Chapter Two of If Winter Comes by A. S. M. Hutchinson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kirk Ziegler. Continued Hapgood. All right. That was two months ago. Last week I was down at Tidborough again. Felt I'd got rather friendly with old Sabre on my last visit, so as soon as I could, toddled off to the office to look him up. Felt quite sure he'd be back there again by now, but he wasn't. He wasn't, and when I began inquiring for him, found there seemed to be some rummy mystery about his absence. Like this, some sort of clerk was in the shop when I went in. Mr. Sabre's upstairs, eh? I asked. No, no, Mr. Sabre's not, not here, says my gentleman, with rather an odd look at me. What, still not laid up, is he? The chap gave me a decidedly odd look. Mr. Sabre's not attending the office at present, sir. Not attending the office? Not ill, is he? No, not ill, I think, sir. Not attending the office. Perhaps you'd like to see one of the partners? I looked at him, but he looked at me. What the devil did he mean? Just then I caught sight of an old bird I knew slightly coming down the stairs with a book under his arm. Old chap called Bright, sort of a foreman or something. Looked rather like Moses coming down the mountain with the tables of stone in his fist. I said in my cheery way, Hello, Mr. Bright. Good morning. I was just inquiring for Mr. Sabre. By Jove, I thought for a minute the old patriarch was going to heave the tables of stone at my head. He caught up the book with both his hands, and gave a sort of choke and blazed at me out of his eyes. By gad, I might have been a poor old Aaron caught jazzing around the golden calf. Let me tell you, sir, this is no place to inquire after Mr. Sabre, said he. Let me tell you. Well, I'd have let him tell me any old thing. That was what I was there for. But he shut himself up with kind of a gasp, and cannoned himself into his tabernacle under the stairs and left me there, wondering if I was where I thought I was, or had got into a moving picture show by mistake. The clerk had fallen through the floor or something. I was alone, friendless. Nobody wanted me. I thought to myself, Percival, old man, you're on the unpopular side of the argument. You're non-suited, old man. And I thought I wouldn't take any more chances in this biblical film, not with old Father Abraham Fortune or friend Judas Iscariot Twining. I thought I'd push out to Penny Green and see old Sabre for myself. So I did. I certainly did. Can you imagine me, old man, in my natty little blue suit, tripping up the path of Sabre's house, and guessing to myself that the mystery wasn't a mystery at all, but only the office, perhaps, rather fed up with Sabre for staying away nursing his game leg so long? By Jove, it wasn't that. House had rather a neglected appearance, I thought. Doorknob not polished, or blind still down somewhere, or something. I don't know, something. What made me curious of it was that I kept a long time waiting after I'd rung the bell. In fact, I had to ring twice. Then I heard someone coming. And you know how your mind unconsciously expects things, so it gives you quite a start when the thing isn't there. Well, I suppose I'd been expecting to see one of Sabre's two servants. My couple of jinxes, he calls them. And pawn my soul? I was quite startled when the door opened, and it wasn't one of them at all, but a very different pair of shoes. It was a young woman, ladylike, dressed in some ordinary sort of clothes. I don't know. Uncommonly pretty, or might have been if she hadn't looked so uncommonly sad. And this was what knocked me, carrying a baby. Upon my soul, I couldn't have been more astonished if the door had been opened by the Kaiser carrying the crown prince. I don't know why I should have imagined she was the kid's mother, but I did. I don't know why I should have looked at her hands, but I did. I don't know why I should have expected to see a wedding ring, but I did. 
and there wasn't one. Well, she was saying, yes, in an inquiring, timid sort of way. Me standing there like a fool, you understand, and I suddenly recovered from my flabbergasteration and guessed the obvious thing, that the Sabres had let their house to strangers and gone away. Still more obvious, you might say, that Mrs. Sabre had produced a baby, and that the girl was her sister or someone. But that never occurred to me. No, I guess they'd gone away, and I said, I was calling to see Mr. Sabre. Has he gone away? I thought her looking timid. She was looking at me now decidedly as if she were frightened of me. No, no, Mr. Sabre's not gone away. He's here. Are you a friend of his? I smiled at her. Well, I used to be, I said. She didn't smile. What the dickens was up? I used to be. I always thought I was. My name's Hapgood. Perhaps you'd better come in. You know what was perfectly extraordinary? Her voice was as sad as her face. I stepped in. What on earth was I going to hear? Sabre dying? Wife dying? Air-raid bomb fallen on the house and everybody dead? Upon my soul, I began to feel creepy. Scout began to prick. Then suddenly there was old Sabre at the head of the stairs. What is it, Effie? Then he saw me. Hello, Hapgood. His voice was devilishly pleased, and he said again in rather a thoughtful voice, Hello, Hapgood. And he began to come down slowly with his stick. Well, he wasn't dead anyway. That was something to go with. And I took his hand and said, Hello, Sabre. How goes it, old man? Able to do the stairs now, I see. I was down to Tidborough and thought I'd come up and look you up again. Fine, he said, shaking my hand. Jolly nice of you. Then he said, Did you go to the office for me, Hapgood? I just looked in, I said offhandedly. Saw a clerk who said you weren't down today, so I came along up. He was doing some thinking. I could see that. He said, "'Jolly good for you. I'm glad. You'll stay a bit, of course.' The girl had faded away. He went a bit along the passage and called out, "'Effie, can you scratch up a bit of lunch for Mr. Hapgood?' I suppose she said yes. "'Lunch'll be on in about two minutes,' he came back to me with. "'You're later than when you came up last time. Come along in here.' Led me into the morning room, and we sat down and pretended to talk. Very poor pretense. I give you my word both of us manifestly straining to do the brisk and hearty, and the two of us producing about as much semblance of chatty interchange as a couple of victims waiting their turn in a dentist's parlor. The door was open, and I could hear someone moving about laying the lunch. That was all I could hear, and I don't mind telling you I was a deal more interested in what I could hear going on outside than anything we could put up between us, or rather what I couldn't hear going on outside. No voices, none of those sounds. None of that sort of feeling that tells you people are about the place. There was some mystery knocking about the place somewhere, and it was on the other side of the door. And that was where my attention was. Presently I heard the girl's voice outside. Lunch is ready. We jumped up like two schoolboys, released from detention, and went along in. More mystery. Lunch at Saber's place was always a beautifully conducted rite, as I was accustomed to it. Announced by two gongs, warning and ready, and to begin with, and here we'd been shuffled in by a girl's casual remark in the passage, and beautifully appointed and served when you got there, and here was, well, there were plates laid for two only, and a ramshackle kind of cold picnic scattered about the cloth. Everything there, help yourself kind of show. A bit of cold meat, half a cold tart, a lump of cheese, loaf of bread, assortment of plates, and so on. Sabre said, oh, by the way, my wife's not here, she's away. I murmured the polite thing. He was staring at the two plates, frowning a bit, and hopped off on his old stick. 
Then I heard him talking to this mysterious girl. At least I heard her voice first. Oh, I can't, I can't. Then Sabre. Nonsense, Effie, you must. You must, I insist. Don't be silly. Then a door slammed. Well, I ask you, if I didn't say to myself, the plot thickens. If I didn't say it, I can promise you I thought it. I did. And it proceeded to curdle. The door that had slammed open, and presently in comes Sabre with the girl, and the girl with the baby in arms. Sabre said in his ordinary easy voice, he's got a particularly nice voice, has old Sabre. This is a very retiring young person, Hapgood. Had to be dragged in. Miss Bright, her father's in the office. Perhaps you've met him, have you? Well, I don't know what I said, old man. I know what I thought. I thought just precisely what you're thinking. Yes. I'd had a furiously vivid shot of a recollection of old Bright as I'd seen him a couple of hours before, of his blazing look, of his gesture of wanting to hurl the tables of stone at me, and of his extraordinary remark about Sabre. I had that, and I did what you're doing. I put two and two together and found the obvious answer, same as you, and I jolly near fell down dead. I did. Jolly near. But Sabre was going on, pleasant and natural as you please. Miss Bright was here as a companion to my wife while I was in France. Now she's staying here a bit. Put the baby on the sofa, Effie, and let's get to work. I'd like you two to be friends. Hapgood and I were at school together, you know, about a thousand years ago. They used to call him Porker because he was so thin. The girl smiled faintly. I put up an hysterical sort of squeak and we sat down. The meal wasn't precisely a banquet. We helped ourselves and stacked up the soil plates as we used them. No servants, do you see? It was pretty clear by now. No wife, no servants, no wedding ring. Nothing but Old Bright's daughter and Old Bright's daughter's baby. And, and Sabre. I suppose I talked. I heard my voice sometimes. The easy flow Sabre had started with didn't last long. The girl hardly spoke. I watched her a lot. I liked the look of her. She must have been uncommonly pretty in a vivacious sort of way before she ran up against her trouble, whatever it was. I say whatever it was. I'd no real reason to suppose I knew, though, mind you, I was guessing pretty shrewdly it was lying there on the sofa wrapped up in what you call em swaddling clothes. Yes, uncommonly pretty, but now sad. Sad as a young widow at the funeral, that sort of look. It was her eyes that especially showed it. Extraordinary eyes. Like two great pools of shadow, if I may quote poetry at you. Her eyes were deeper than the depth of waters stilled it even and all the sorrow in them of all the women since mary magdalene all the time but once once the baby whimpered she got up and went to it and stooped over it the other side of the sofa from me so i could see her face by gad if you could have seen her eyes then motherhood lucky you weren't there because if you've any idea of ever painting a picture called motherhood you had gone straight out and cut your throat on the mat in despair you certainly would well anyway the banquet got more and more awkward to endure as it dragged on, and mighty glad I was when at last the girl got up, without a word, and picked up the baby and left us. Left us. We were no more chatty for being alone, I can promise you. I absolutely could not think of a word to say, and any infernal thing that old Sabre managed to rake up seemed complete and done to death the minute he'd said it. Then all of a sudden he began. He fished out some cigarettes and chucked me one, and we smoked like a couple of exhaust valves for about two minutes, and then he said, Hapgood, why on earth should I have to explain all this to you? Why should I? 
I said, a tiny bit sharply, I was getting a bit on edge, you know. I said, well, who's asked you to? I haven't asked any questions, have I? Sabre said, no, I know you haven't asked any, and I'm infernally grateful to you. You're the first person across this threshold in months that hasn't, but I know you're thinking them hard, and I know I've got to answer them, and I want to. I want to most frightfully. But what beats me is this infernal feeling that I must explain to you, to you and to everybody, whether I want to or not. Why should I? It's my own house. I can do what I like in it. I'm not, anyway, doing anything wrong. I'm doing something more right than I've ever done in my life, and yet everybody's got the right to question me, and everybody's got the right to be answered. And, Hapgood, it's the most bewildering state of affairs that can possibly be imagined. I'm up against a code of social conventions, and by Jove I'm absolutely down and out. I'm absolutely tied up, hand and foot, and chucked away. Do you know what I am, Hapgood? He gave a laugh. He wasn't talking a bit savagely, and he never did talk like that all through what he told me. He was just talking in a tone of sheer hopeless, extremely interested puzzlement, bafflement, amazement. Just as a man might talk to you of some absolutely baffling conjuring trick he'd seen. In fact, he used that very expression. Do you know what I am, Hapgood? And he gave a laugh, as I've said. I'm what they call a social outcast. A social outcast beyond the pale. Unspeakable. Ostracized. Blackballed. Excommunicated. He got up and began to stump about the room, hands in his pockets, chin on his collar, wrestling with it, and wrestling, mind you, just in profoundly interested bafflement. Unspeakable, he said. Excommunicated. By Jove, it's astounding. It's amazing. It's like a stupendous conjuring trick. I've done something that isn't done. Not something that's wrong. Something that's incontestably right. But it isn't done. People don't do it. And I've done it. And therefore, hey, presto, I'm turned into a leper, a pariah, an outlaw. Amazing. Astounding. Then he settled down and told me. And this is what he told me. When he was out in France, this girl I'd seen, this Effie as he called her, Effie Bright, had come to live as a companion to his wife. It appears he more or less got her the job. He'd seen her at the office with her father, and he'd taken tremendous fancy to her. A jolly kid, that was the expression he used. And he said he was awfully fond of her, just as he might be of a jolly little sister. He got her some other job previously with some friends or other, and the girl came to his place while he was away. Something like that. Anyway, she came. She came somewhere around October 15th, and she left early in March following. Just over a year. His wife got fed up with her and got rid of her. That's what Sabre says. Got fed up with her and got rid of her, and Sabre was at home at the time. Mark that, old man, because it's important. Sabre was home at the time, about three weeks on leave. Very well. The girl got the sack, and he went back to France. She got another job somewhere as companion again. He doesn't know quite where. He thinks at Barnmouth. Anyway, that's nothing to do with it. Well, he got wounded and discharged from the army, as you know, and in February he was living home again with his wife in the conditions I described to you when I began. He said nothing to me about the conditions, about the terms they were on. But I've told you what I saw. It's important because it was exactly into the situation as I then saw it that came to pass the thing that came to pass. This. The very week after I'd been down there, his wife, reading a letter at breakfast one morning, gave a kind of snort, 
as I can imagine it, and chucked the letter over to him and said, Ha! There's your wonderful Miss Bright for you. What did I tell you? What do you think of that? Ha! Those were her very words and her very snorts and what they meant. Your wonderful Miss Bright for you meant was, as he explained to me, that when he was home on leave with the girl in the house, they were frequently having words about her because he thought his wife was a bit sharp with her, and his wife, for her part, said he was forever sticking up for her. What do you think of that? Ha! And she chucked the letter over to him, and from what I know of her you can imagine her sitting bolt upright, bridling with virtuous prescience confirmed, watching him while he read it. Saber said the letter was the most frightfully pathetic document he could ever have imagined. Smudged, he said, and stained and badly expressed, as if the writer, this girl, this Effie Bright, was crying and incoherent with distress when she wrote it. And no doubt she was. She said she'd gotten into terrible trouble. She'd got a little baby. Saber said it was awful to him the way she kept on in every sentence calling it a little baby, never a child, or just a baby, but always a little baby, my little baby. He said it was awful. He said it was born in December. You remember, old man, it was the previous March she'd got the sack from them, and that she'd been living in lodgings with it, and that now she was well enough to move, and had come to the absolute end of her money she was being turned out, and was at her wit's end with despair, and nearly out of her mind to know what to do with all that kind of thing. She said her father wouldn't have anything to do with her. And no one would have anything to do with her, so long as she kept her little baby. That was her plight. No one would have anything to do with her while she had the baby. Her father was willing to take her home, and some kind people had offered to take her into service, and the clergyman where she was had said there were other places he could get her, but only all of them, if she would give up the baby and put it out to a nurse somewhere. And she said, and underlined it about fourteen times, Saber said, and cried over it so you could hardly read it, she said, and, oh, Miss Saber, I can't, I can't, I simply cannot give up my little baby. He's mine, she said. He looks at me, and knows me, and stretches out his tiny hands to me. I can't give him up. I can't let my little baby go. Whatever I've done, I'm his mother, and he's my little baby, and I can't let him go. Saber said it was awful. I can believe it was. I'd seen the girl, and I'd seen her stooping over her baby, like I told you. And I can well believe awful was the word for it poor soul. And then she said, I can remember this bit, then she said, and so, in my terrible distress, dear Mrs. Saber, I am throwing myself on your mercy, and begging you, imploring you, for the love of God, to take in me and my little baby, and let me work for you, and do anything for you, and bless you, and ask God's blessings forever upon you, and teach my little baby to pray for you, as something or other I forget. And then she said a lot of hysterical things about working her fingers to the bone for Mrs. Saber, and knowing she was a wicked girl and not fit to be spoken to by anyone, and was willing to sleep in a shed in the garden and never to open her mouth, and all that sort of thing. And all the way through, my little baby, my little baby. Saber said it was awful. Also, she said, I'm telling you just what Saber told me. And he told me this bit deliberately, as you might say, also, she said that she didn't want to pretend she was more sinned against than sinning, but that if Mrs. Saber knew the truth, she might judge her less harshly, and be more willing to help her. Yes, Saber told me that. All right. Well, here was the appeal. There was this piteous appeal, as Saber said. And there was Saber profoundly touched by it, and there was his wife bridling over it. One up against her husband, who'd always stuck up for the girl, 
You see, about two million up in justification of her own opinion of her. There they were, and then Sabre said, turning the letter over in his hands, Well, what are you going to do about it? You can imagine his wife's tone. Do about it, do about it. What on earth do you think I'm going to do about it? And Sabre said, Well, I think we ought to certainly take the poor creature in. That's what he said, and I can perfectly imagine his face as he said it, all twisted up with the intensity of the struggle he foresaw, and with the intensity of his feelings on the subject. And I can perfectly well imagine his wife's face as she heard him. By Jove, I can. She was furious, absolutely white and speechless with fury. But not speechless long, Sabre said. And I dare bet she wasn't. Sabre said she worked herself up in a most awful way, and used language about the girl that cut him like a knife. Language like speaking of the baby as that brat. It made him wince. It would, the sort of chap he is. And said that the more she railed, the more frightfully he realized the girl's position, up against that sort of thing everywhere she turned. He described all that to me, and then, so to speak, he stated his case. He said to me, his face all twisted up with the strain of trying to make someone else see what was so perfectly clear to himself, he said, Well, what I say to you, Hapgood, is just precisely what I said to my wife. I felt that the girl had a claim on us. In the first place, she turned to us in her abject misery for help, and that alone established a claim, even if it had come from an utter stranger. It established a claim because here was a human creature, absolutely down and out, come to us picking us out from everybody for succor damn it you've got to respond you're picked out you one human creature by another human creature breathing the same air sharing the same mortality responsible to the same god you've got to you can't help yourself you're caught if you hear someone appealing to anyone else you can scuttle out of it get away pass by on the other side square it with your conscience any old how but when that someone comes to you, you're done. You're fixed. You may hate it. You may loathe and detest the position that's been forced on you. But it's there. You can't get out of it. The same earth as your earth is there, at your feet imploring you. And if you've got a grain, a jot of humanity, you must, you must, out of the very flesh and bones of you, respond to that cry of this brother or your sister, as made you yourself or made. Well, Hapgood, he went on, that's one claim the girl had on us, and to my way of thinking it was enough. But she had another, a personal claim. She'd been in our house, in our service. She was our friend, sat with us, eaten with us, talked with us, shared with us, and now, now turned to us. Good God, man, was that to be refused? Was that to be denied? Were we going to repudiate that? Were we going to say, Yes, it's true you were. You were all very well when you were of use to us. That's all true and admitted. But now you're in trouble and no use. And you can get the hell out of it. Good God, were we to say that? You should have seen his face. You should have heard his voice. You should have seen him squirming and twisting in his chair, as though this was the very roots of him coming up out of him and hurting him. And I tell you, old man, it was the very roots of him. It was his creed. It was his religion. It was his composition. It was the whole nature and basis and foundation of the man as it had been storing up within him all his life, ever since he was the rummy, thoughtful sort of beggar he used to be as a kid at old Wickamote's thirty years ago. It got me, I can tell you. It made me feel funny. 
Yes, and the next thing he went on to was equally the blood and bones of him, in a way even more characteristic. He said, Mind you, Hapgood, I don't blame my wife that all this had no effect on her. I don't blame her in the least, and I never lost my temper or got angry over the business. I see her point of view absolutely, and I see absolutely the point of view of the girl's father and of everyone else who's willing to take in the girl, but insists she must give up the baby. I see their point of view, and understand it as plain as I see and understand that calendar hanging on the wall. I see it perfectly. And he laughed in a whimsical sort of way, and said, That's the devil of it. Characteristic, eh? Wasn't that just exactly like old Sabre at school puzzling up his old nut and saying, Yes, but I see what he means? Well, wait a bit. He came to that again afterwards. It seems that, if you please, the very next day the girl herself follows up her letter by walking into the house. Eh? Yes, you can well say by Jove. In she walked, baby and all. She walked all the way from Tidborough, and God knows how far earlier in the day. Sabre said she was half dead. She had been to her father's house, and her father, that terrific-looking old Moses coming down the mountain that I've described to you, had turned her out. He'd take her. He had cried over her, the poor crying creature said, if she'd send away her baby. Also, she'd say who the father was, but she wouldn't. I can't let my baby go, she said. Sabre said it was awful hearing her. And so he drove her out, the old Moses man did, and the poor soul tried around for a bit, no money, and then trailed out to them. Sabre wouldn't tell me all that happened between his wife and himself. I gather that in his quiet way, perfectly seeing his wife's point of view, and genuinely deeply distressed at the frightful pitch things were coming to, in that sort of way he nevertheless got his back up against his sense of what he ought to do, and said the girl was not to be sent away, that she was to stop. His wife said, You're determined? He said, Mabel, that's her name, Mabel, I'm desperately poignantly sorry, but I'm absolutely determined. She said, Very well. If she's going to be in the house, I'm going out of it. I'm going to my father's. Now. You'll not expect the servants to stay in the house while you've got this, this woman living with you. Yes, she said that. So I shall pay them up and send them off. Now, before I go. Are you still determined? Poor devil, standing there with his stick and his game leg and his face working, said, Mabel, Mabel, believe me, that kills me to say it, but I am absolutely... The girl's got no home. She only wants to keep her baby. She must stop. She must stop. His wife went off to the kitchen. Pretty fierce, eh? Sabre said he sat where she'd left him, in the morning room in a straight-back chair, with his legs stuck out in front of him, wrestling with it like hell. The girl was in the dining room. His wife and the servants were plunging about overhead. In about two hours his wife came back and dressed to go. She said, I packed my boxes. Shall I send for them? The maids have packed theirs, and they will send. I've sent them on to the station in front of me. There's only one more thing I want to say to you. You say this woman, this woman, you know, old Sabre, when he was telling me, you say this woman has a claim on us? He began, Mabel, I do, I... She said, Do you want my answer to that? My answer is that perhaps she has a claim on you. And she went. End of chapter 2. Recording by Kirk Ziegler, Ogden, Utah, voiceover-solutions.com.